0: Welcome to Thoughts on the Social World, socialworldpodcast.com. Sponsored by David Niven Associates, your host is Dave Niven. Hello there, and welcome to podcast 15 of this series. I'm Dave Niven, and this is the Social World Podcast, which you can find at the socialworldpodcast.com. Downloaded now, apart from the UK, in 33 countries and 23 American states, and delighted to speak to you all. Now, this week is all about survivors and coping. The first interview I'm doing is with Peter Garsden, who's a solicitor and senior partner at Abney Garsden, based in Manchester in the north of England. Now, he's dedicated over 20 years to uh, representing survivors of abuse He's been the lead in over 25 class actions, and he's now been made Legal Aid Lawyer of the Year, based in Manchester, and he set up the Association of Child Abuse Lawyers over 20 years ago. And following that, there's just a section where I give my own views on how social workers are coping with some of the most challenging of times and how they need more support to cope with the pressures of the work and so deliver the best service to the community. So it's a good week. But thanks for all of you who've responded to the podcast and who continue to and who follow it. It's really appreciated. Now, I'd love it if you left written reviews on iTunes still or um, Speakpipe, which is the uh, voice recording service, one click, just beside the blog, so the podcasts that I do regularly. Finally, thanks to Alba Digital Media, who, uh, contact details you can find on our website, that's www.socialworldpodcast.com. They've been invaluable in helping us not only create this podcast and set it up, but, but advise on how to get into the world of podcasting. And it's something I'd recommend to you to have a look at too, if you're interested in that particular thing. So on with today's show, and uh, I hope you enjoy it. Right, hello. We've got Peter Garston here today, and Peter's the senior partner with Abney Garston, and he's the head of child abuse department, which he set up in 1994, and it's now the dedicate, largest dedicated abuse compensation department in the country. Peter, I've known you for several years. We have met on a few occasions you've certainly been a significant figure working with survivors of abuse how have you seen things change in these twenty years as far as survivors are concerned
1: well uh, there's been a, a sea change in many many ways um, firstly there are a lot more facilities around now for survivors in the very early days back in 94 95 very little was known about abuse by the experts and there was very little therapy or treatment for them and um... they had to operate in what I can only describe as a state of chaos and confusion whilst the medical profession caught up with this new wave of abuse disclosures um... as far as the law is concerned it has changed through thousands of degrees uh... the the law generally Pendulates to and fro depending mm-hmm. on knowledge and the way in which uh, the lawyers challenge different points. I think it's fair to say that back in 1994, uh, there was no precedent, there were no cases, and we were all feeling around in the dark. Um, and inevitably, defendant insurance companies decide that they'll challenge everything and put you to proof. In the hope that they can establish some precedent, um, and there have been various cases that have been to the House of Lords on liability, quantum um, limitation, time delay. Uh, that that that's what limitation is. Um, uh, the the defendants have more or less lost all of them. Uh, the the law lords thankfully have been on the side of the vulnerable uh, victim of abuse. Um, And the law is much more favorable to them now than it was then. And um, there have been many, many legal changes um, which are too complicated to explain in simple terms. But um, there was a landmark case in 2008 which uh, enabled survivors to sue individual abusers. Until then, ironically it wasn't possible to sue an individual abuser if the case was out of time now it is so the scope of cases that we can bring um, yeah. is much wider than it used to be
0: well um, you've been involved for such a long time I mean you set up the Association of child abuse lawyers in 1997 I mean so it's been so frustrating for, part, for, for 15 or these 20 years at the very least
1: did you feel you were banging your head against a brick wall sometimes Oh, definitely. Um, it was emotionally very demanding back in 1995-96 uh, because there was no guidance on how to keep yourself healthy and safe. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the possibility of the lawyers and the experts suffering secondary trauma was quite a risk. Uh, and In fact, there were a few casualties. Not me, thankfully, though uh, I found it very difficult emotionally in the early days. It was professional uncertainty, uh, the emotional content of the work, and the demands on professional time. I had a small firm of six people in those days, and I grew from six people to forty people in a very short space of time, and that was in response to the hundreds of children's home cases that were coming through the police Prosecution system, uh, and they inevitably ended up in my lap, and I ended up uh, dealing with them. And uh, when one thinks that the law was more or less impossible to find your way around in those days, it was a, a wonder that we managed to win as many cases as we did. Um, and in the process, the defendant insurance companies were making life as difficult as they could for us, challenging every point um, they could. Uh, they were they applied to strike out a huge group action that um, I I started in 1997 on the grounds of uh, technicality and yeah, they lost that but it ended up in the court of appeal so there were me- there were many many pressures and uh, in the process we were learning the hard way. And
0: You've been lead solicitor on about 25 different group actions and on yes. having over a thousand claimants. Um, Hey, can I just take you back a moment there, just the emotional impact on yourself and presumably your family, too? I mean, it must have been horrific at times. I mean, I, I know from social work some of the pressures that, you know, working with some of the most damaged people can can bring. But, I, I mean, I suspect within the law and working in your field, people don't give so much time and credit to the impact that it has on, on solicitors, but yet obviously in your case it did. It must have been really difficult.
1: Oh, it was. Um, I think it was the early days of my marriage and uh, things weren't as stable as they are now, but uh, I know I separated from my wife in 1998, and um, a big contributory factor were the, uh, the pressures of work. Um, I think the dangers are that you, if you're not careful, you End up on the same soapbox as your clients, and mm-hmm. it's a big mistake. I mean, now that part of it doesn't affect me simply because we have a, a more stable uh, legal system and uh, we're more experienced. And um, I think everything was more raw and uh, uncertain in those days, and that uncertainty creates stress and worry and um, Fortunately I'm not the victim of abuse in childhood, uh, but I do know of solicitors who have been the victims of abuse in childhood that have um, um, had a nervous breakdown as a result of doing this type of work. Mm. Um, And that's why we're very careful that we we choose stable, well-balanced people to work for us, um, because if we don't we're creating a hostage to fortune really.
0: I was going to say, would you recommend young solicitors just coming into the profession to think about the, this line of work, or would you probably advise them to get a few years of, um, of work under their
1: belt first before they specialised in this sort of line of work? Well, it, it depends on them, really. I think you know, We take on paralegals um, all the time to help us with the work, and they seem to deal with it very well, but we're careful to choose the right sorts of people. Um, uh, I think if we're taking on a solicitor to deal with these cases themselves without supervision, uh, they should be at least three years qualified mm. before they could be. Because this area of work, there are difficulties at every level. The cases are out of time. A lot of the documents have been destroyed. Um, you're challenged on every point by the defendants. Uh, you have difficult, unstable clients who are high maintenance, uh, the, 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 you're, you're not talking about a broken leg, you're talking about uh, psychiatric problems and impacts. Uh, everything is a lot more complex and uh, difficult than in, in a run-of-the-mill type of a case, so you, know, you need a feel for the work and you need experience. Well, you've just been awarded Legal Aid Lawyer of
0: the Year, I believe, at the Manchester Legal Awards, and obviously a a much more experienced man now, and I suspect at the very beginning a lot of people saw you rather as a kind of a, well, not a pain in the neck, but you know what I mean, an irritant, but now that you're so well known and respected, I mean, you've lectured and you've written all over the place, and you've actually climbed to the top of your profession, I mean... do you think that there's so much
1: more to still come out of the woodwork now with what you find? Oh, definitely. Um, back in 1994, people said, Peter, uh, what on earth are you going to do in three years' time when the North Wales Tribunal finishes? Because, <laughs> th- will that not be the end of it? Um, unfortunately, uh, I, I had a little chuckle and um, could see that you know ab- abuse was not limited to North Wales, uh, but was countrywide, and the statistics are obviously that we now know, you know, one in four adults are the victims of abuse. Um, and in in those days, very few people talked about it because of the social restrictions on them. Whereas now, it's all over the newspaper, and uh, and that's a, that's a good thing. It's healthy. So I, I'm sure that that disclosure of abuse will get greater and greater and greater um, um, and maybe one day uh, I'll have nothing to do but somehow I doubt it.
0: Yeah, You've seen the Northern Ireland inquiry across the water that's just commencing and they reckon it's going to be about an 18 month experience and um, well we'll have to wait and see obviously what comes out of that. Do you think that's something that should happen to the whole of the UK? That we should be having something as substantial as that?
1: Oh definitely. Uh, I mean, the best example of a a governmental system uh, to deal with uh, victims of abuse was in Southern Ireland between about 2003 and 2005. uh, They set up the Redress Board, uh, which was a no-fault compensation tribunal that um, paid compensation to victims and, in addition, they paid legal fees. Um, uh, And in addition to that, they had the Commission of Inquiry which looked into the allegations of abuse and enabled the victims to tell their story uh, and investigate what happened. Um, And the the Northern Ireland tribunal that's just been announced is a reaction to the Southern Ireland version, but the Northern Ireland version significantly has omitted the compensation element, which is regrettable. Um, They've allowed the the claimants to speak their, say, their bit, but um, uh, relied upon the court system to deal with the compensation and the the reason they set up the redress board in southern Ireland was because they felt their legal system couldn't cope um, with all the claims that there were going to be so uh, whether there will be a further tribunal I doubt because um, you know nobody's got any money these days and the the, the reason southern Ireland set up theirs was because they had a lot of European money at the time obviously now they're bankrupt more or less so
0: no, I just wondered because of the, the what we are saying earlier on about the landscape. I mean, I suspect a lot of people might say to you, for example, well, now look, based on, you know, what Archbishop Tutu did in South Africa, you know, the kind of uh, truth and reconciliation type approach to things. Yes. At, at, at least that gave some people closure. At least it, it kind of got to some point where they could um, have things out on the table without fear of, of, of redress and move on. But on the other hand, of course, you get people saying, well, that's ridiculous because what happened to us was, was it was outright criminal activity. And we do need compensation of some kind for this because we want people to be punished because they committed a crime. Yes. I mean, it's quite a balance sometimes, isn't it, about getting getting people better balanced themselves as, as humans, because they've got to live with this all their lives. On the other hand, quite rightly so, people have got to actually be challenged and, and, and punished if necessary, because that's what people would demand for closure. I mean, I, I don't know how you feel about that
1: that kind of balance. Well, it's, it's a very difficult one. Um, we end up with people that have been through the judicial process and not had justice. That's why they come to us because they feel the courts or the police have let them down, um, and they want somebody to say sorry. Uh, they want um, to take the power back because in childhood they've been the victims of abuse by a very powerful person, and. By being abused, they've been disempowered so in later life they want to take control and have the power that they didn't have at the time um, and that's that's a very difficult thing for the judicial system to emulate and produce and the best we can do uh, is give them compensation or send the um, abuser to prison but ironically where they don't have the day in court and the abuser just peels. Pleads guilty, they feel a bit cheated, Mm. um, because they they want to stand up there, face to face with their abuser, and and make and watch him feel as upset as he made them feel when they were a child. And um, Mm. that's, I mean, that's a simplistic view, but. Justice comes in many different forms, obviously.
0: Mm. I mean, do you want to say a little bit about the current sort of wave of of kind of celebrity disclosures that are coming forth? Because in in my opinion, it it seems to be helping survivors get the courage to come forward. No, I mean, it, it, they may not have been abused by a celebrity, but essentially, even if they were abused by the man next door, it, it effectively, it gives them that little bit of confidence seeing other people um, uh, telling their stories. What would you, what, what's your views on this kind of recent rash of, of events?
1: Well, um, I think the recent rash of celebrity prosecutions is as much a reaction uh, by the authorities to mistakes in the past, as it is, uh, in other words, I think there's a lot of back covering going on, uh, as much as it is um, a genuine effort to help the victims. But certainly, I agree that because of all the publicity, um, it, it, it puts abuse in a sort of celebrity category, which is a bit unfortunate. What you know, when I'm at a dinner party these days. We get the usual, oh, um, oh, are we absolutely sure that these celebrities did it? And people start uh, commenting that certain celebrities must be innocent because they have a nice persona on the television, uh, Mm -hmm. and other celebrities who don't must be guilty. And there's, uh, I mean, I don't think that there can be a fair trial of somebody who people only know. From a soap opera, for example, over thirty years, because the, the jury will find it impossible to distinguish between the person that they know and like on television and the real person who is alleged to have done dreadful things. Um, yeah. So, on the one hand, it's a good thing; on the other hand, it, it elevates abuse to a, a glitzy status that, uh, and and perhaps um, a fragile status that that is a bit dangerous. I mean I've been waiting for the pendulum to swing and for the abuser lobby to take control and suggest that all these young girls don't deserve any compensation and are telling lies. I mean, it, it hasn't quite happened yet because I think you know, the, 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 I think if, if the current individuals who are being prosecuted are acquitted and they're all acquitted um, there could be a backlash and, and that could be damaging to genuine victims who want to come forward.
0: Yeah, although, to be fair, we have had a fair amount of, of actual convictions when you've got the likes of Ian Watkins, you've got Gary Gitter, you've got Jonathan King, and really? there's others over the past, and, I'm, I, and there may be amongst this current batch some who are convicted as well, but I think yeah. I would agree with you that there, it's the equivalent of compassion fatigue. There might be abuser fatigue that would set into the public now, um, yes. and a little bit, I, I take your point on that. Well, look, j- just as a sort of a, a final point, Peter. I mean, obviously, there are lots of people out there who have still not found the strength or the courage or the will to come forward and are having to struggle with their demons. Mm. Um, what sort of messages would you would you give out? Obviously, you know, get in touch with Abney Garst and fine, that's, that's okay. That's a good message. You've got a great track record here. But what sort of message would you give to them having effectively been steeped in this work for a
1: couple of decades now. Um, Have the courage of your convictions. Um, Generally if you have thought of doing something about it and you don't do something about it you will forever have regrets. Uh, Once you're on the track of doing something about it uh, take the initiative and at least contact the police because I think the big change, the biggest change I have seen in the last 20 years is the way in which the police deal with allegations of abuse. I think they had a sticky patch during about 2003 and 2010 when the Jimmy Savile scandal came out but now they really are very experienced, well-trained and they may be busy but they they, they deal with victims I think a lot better uh, than they ever have done and they have specialized child protection, public protection departments who do, with officers who do nothing else but this type of work and they are committed individuals and they will help you. Um, it's better to go to the police first before you come to us um, because our work can interfere with their work but um, if there is no point going to the police because the abuser is dead uh, then come and see us and you'll get a sympathetic ear. Um, I mean I always think it's a bit like Pandora's box. Once Pandora's box has been opened, the demons are out and you have to draw that to its conclusion. If you stop halfway, you're likely to feel worse rather than better.
0: And sometimes it just can't it won't be as bad as you think because as you say people are far more understanding and sympathetic and professional now than ever they were 20 years ago.
1: Yes. Yeah. I mean, the, Abuse victims generally think it was always their fault and feel very guilty for not doing something about it at the time. The message, important message to get across is that it's never too late because there is no time limit at English law um, for criminal prosecutions. Uh, it doesn't matter how old the offences are, the police can still take take action.
0: Mm. And the other thing, too, I will mention, because you mentioned English law, obviously, which is your particular um, area, but we are being listened to and it says, 33 countries now. So check out your own legal status, I would say, within your own country. And there must be people like Peter, like yourself, in your own country as well. So Yes. Check it out. Peter Garsden, very, very many thanks for joining us today. We'll put details of your company on on the, the, the website as well, um, just in case people wanted to get in touch. But I really appreciate you joining us today. Thank you. Pleasure. What I'd like to do is just reflect a little bit about something that I blogged about the other day, but that's Dear to my heart now, for many years, and that's the opportunities or lack of opportunities that social workers have to reflect on their practice. and it's not just something to sit back and consider and chew the cud or whatever. It's an incredibly important part of their practice. It's the fact that social workers the, the tools of the trade, if they like, are their brains. The tools of the trade are their emotional health and the ability that they have to actually give the best to the people they're working with, the clients, the service users, whatever. And if the social workers themselves are stressed out, are close to burnout, are overworked, overloaded, and running around chasing their tails, or or as the other analogy would go, like keeping plates spinning on the top of sticks and keeping them turning all the time without a break, then there's no real opportunity unless they're very, very lucky for them actually to succeed as as best they can um, in transforming the lives of those that they're charged to work with. Now, supervision in social work um, often these days is just seen as operational is just seen as um, caseloads. Have you done this? Have you ticked the boxes? Have you seen the person? Have you seen the child? Did you follow the procedures? Did you write up your visit? Or have you been in touch with other agencies and actually communicated all your concerns there, shared your opinions, and come to a joint conclusion? Or have you properly com- completed the initial assessments, the core assessments, followed it all through, talked to the key people. How many times have you visited the home and have you formed a relationship with the family that is healthy but effective? Fine, all good things, but it doesn't do you any good whatsoever if you yourself are strung out or paper thin in terms of your your ability to absorb things and analyze things. So the multitude as I said of personal practical demands that rests on social workers shoulders is huge. And higher caseloads, staff vacancies, uh, emotional well-being of the worker is often considered second best the problems are that it's 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 not deliberate nobody's saying that that that, that it is necessarily but the competing requirements from their managers uh, often make the reflective side the considerate the considerate side the thoughtful side second best and the practical tasks the statutory obligations the must do's uh, overrule finding time to uh, consider your own health, your own emotional health, your own ability to be as strong as you can to do the job. Now, I quoted before a particularly practical example that I'd come across some time ago, but it's still very relevant today. There was uh, a, a, a man, a worker, I called him Alan, that's not his real name. But anyway, Alan had been working with a family that weren't very well known to social services. They were in need of support. They were a young couple, two young children, but they weren't considered particularly at risk or difficult to manage. But tragically, the, the, the mother, the young mother, died and left him, the father, with two young children, under five, and... To be quite frank, following the, 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 the bereavement, he began to display all sorts of signs of, of um, classical problems following a bereavement. His health deteriorated. His care of the children, his attention to the children deteriorated. He, he, he just hung around in a stupor. His hygiene deteriorated. He wasn't taking care of himself. And the children became more and more difficult for him to manage. And ultimately, in trying to somehow or other cope, he he developed a substance misuse problem, took drugs, and as well as that, he had prescribed medication that his GP had prescribed him for depression. So in a short, very short space of time, he went from coping to becoming, quite frankly, a risk to the welfare of the children, even though social services put a lot of resources into the house, a lot of people to support him, a lot of people to metaphorically put an arm around him, but, and also to, to take care of the children whilst they gave him time to grieve, and the. Limited number the limited members of the extended family. Unfortunately, he didn't have many but the limited numbers of his extended family Tried their best as well, but to be honest they were They were a bit of an emotional mess as well because they'd lost somebody that they loved very much Now, What happened was this? Alan Who at that time should have been a cornerstone of support? organizing things for the household, um, coordinating things, choreographing things, if you like, was actually himself experiencing um, a bereavement, if you like, of his own, because uh, he and his partner had separated and Alan was demonstrating or displaying all the signs of bereavement himself. So he began to lose energy, he began to fudge the situation, he began to lose his awareness of things, his analytical skills became blunted, and he just functioned on very much a sort of robotic basis, a formulaic basis, and he just performed his tasks rather than actually being um, sharp and clear and uh, interested in them. And obviously that shone through to to the service user, to the client. And it wasn't that he he, he didn't recognize this weakening in himself. He did. But he was unable to really ask for help. He didn't know what to do, who to ask for help. And he began to develop classical symptoms of anger towards... um, towards his client and and also impatience with his client and quite frankly deeper down he acknowledged this later but he felt a failure as a professional now all through this his manager who was a good enough person but just didn't recognize the depth of trauma that Alan was experiencing and beyond superficial kind of um, inquiries or, 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 or general kind of comments to Alan, he, he really, he didn't instigate what he should have done. And that was proper reflective practice, proper support, proper referral on if necessary to professional help somewhere that would have, um, if you like, put an arm around Alan professionally. So the issue here for me was that it's an absolute essential part of social work that that reflective practice, that reflective supervision should be available to all social workers because you can't just chuck them in damaged themselves into situations working with damaged people. It just is an illogical equation. And the emotional health of workers is crucial to providing the best service. There is just no argument with that. Now, his immediate manager, and this happens a lot, it might just be that the worker doesn't feel able to fully open up to them to fully share with them the depth of their own trauma the depth of their own feelings it could be a gender issue which is perfectly understandable it could be personality issue which is understandable too and but the question is certainly in the UK People out there uh, elsewhere and abroad tell me about it if it's different where you are. I I do believe it is in some of the other industrialized countries. But in the UK, more often than not, there's no alternative. Because if the worker appears to be burning out, if the worker appears to be um, dysfunctional, there is uh, psychological help available. There's therap- there's therapists that that, that that can be phoned up that are um, retained if you like by the council, but they are so abstract, so impersonal, and that if somebody is referred to them, it's often felt that that person has failed, that that person themselves is 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 broken, if you like, and it's um. It's not just a question of strengthening them. It's a question of almost resurrecting them, or or challenging whether they're fit for practice ever again. And that's the feelings that a lot of people who are referred to sort of psychological services actually go into. It's nothing to do, nothing to do with the psychologists, nothing to do with the people who are are, are retained to counsel. It's to do with the entirety of the system and how people feel who are referred for support now i'm not surprised therefore that the level of burnout is high in social services especially in frontline services both with children and with adults who where the workers are dealing with the most vulnerable and sometimes quite damaged people in their own right um healthy workers do better work there's just no question about that and the real issue that is necessary to recognize is that the support for them the counseling support the therapeutic support if you like the professional arm around their shoulders as i said has got to be with somebody that they can open up to and trust and so therefore there should be opportunities for workers to go away from their immediate operational manager if that just happens not to be a suitable fix. And ultimately it is a cost-benefit because you would have people working with counsellors that they trust working with counsellors that they had an element of choosing and therefore coming back to work healthier, stronger, more centred and the factor of, of, of help that they would be able therefore to give to their clients exponentially would have increased hugely and so ultimately the employer would benefit but we don't have that choice in the UK It doesn't appear to be there and there doesn't appear to be the resources being provided to deliver that service. So I really think at the end of the day, social workers who are often, and especially these days in times of um, um, lack of numbers or in times of vacancy rates or in times of very high caseloads and in times of absolute pressure, both from statutory work and from the media, in order to deliver, they really need these extra resources. They really need that backup. They need to be recognised that that is all part of the professional plan. That's all part of the makeup of what makes a good social worker. is to have that safety net, have that support, and not be allowed to drift and not be certainly allowed to burn out. <music> Well, thanks very much indeed for listening. That's today's episode. Just a couple of things before I go. I'd like to remind you about the conference that we're holding on the 4th of April at uh, Ashton Court Mansions uh, in Bristol, in the west of England. Um, It's going to be a fantastic conference. It's really shaping up well. It's uh, following on the UNICEF initiative on uh, the first 1,001 days of a child's life from conception to age 2. And David Niven Associates are doing it in conjunction with the British agencies for the study and prevention of child abuse and neglect. A fantastic lineup. It's looking at all the issues to do with traumatised, very young children, whether it's domestic violence in the household, whether it's mental health matters in the family, or substance abuse, possibly in the adults in the house as well. Anything that causes trauma to very young children who has all of you will know are a very, very difficult age group to work with and to actually uh, center their emotions and understand what's going on around them. Now, one of the uh, speakers there is going to be Jane Evans and she's left this SpeakPipe message for us.
1: Hi David, I just wanted to let you know I was at a multi-agency networking meeting in the north of Bristol
0: yesterday and got the opportunity to share information about
1: this fantastic conference and got a great response. So I will be following up with all the contacts I made yesterday across Bristol
0: and sending out information and look forward to seeing some more bookings for this great event. Thanks very much indeed Jane, looking forward to hearing your contribution at the conference and reading your book, uh, which is coming out on the 28th of February and will be advertised widely at the conference and on our website, in fact it's our website, socialworldpodcast.com where you can get all the details of the conference and also where you can use SpeakPipe yourself. It's a terrific tool, it's just one click, you leave a message, you tell me what you think of the podcasts, of the blogs and you give me ideas that you'd like to hear in the future. Anyway, for now, it's been a pleasure of talking to you and I hope to listen again in the future. Thank you.